On today's episode, we're talking about food and community with Rima Sill of Reem's Bakery. This is Ikhlas. And this is Mecca. You're listening to Identity Politics, a podcast on race, gender, and Muslims in America. Mecca, tell the people where they can find us. You can find us wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Acast. You can also find us online at identitypoliticspod.com, on Twitter at identitypolpod, and on facebook.com slash identitypolitics. And remember, if you like what you hear, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, Heba. Hey, Klaus. How are you? I am good. Excited to be here for the Thanksgiving episode. Yeah, it's so great to have you on. <laughs> I know usually like it's me and Mecca, um, but Mecca's on vacation living her best life <laughs> in Malaysia. She really is. Have you seen her Instagram pictures? I She's know. She's got like her outfits coordinated with her husband and everything. <laughs> That's literally <laughs> the first thing that popped in my mind. <laughs> it's such an aesthetic. Like, I don't know. I just want to shout out. I think they look great. Seriously, I like literally replied to one of her photos like cool pants. <laughs> really though. <laughs> I love it. But no, it's great to have you here. I don't think we've done just yeah, we haven't done an intro just you and I. So this is great. <laughs> yeah, it's the first time. Yeah. yeah. So um for this episode, okay, you called it the Thanksgiving episode. So um here's a little secret. Uh, actually two secrets, okay? The first one is that I never knew like the day of Thanksgiving. I was like always really confused. <laughs> I would be like, oh yeah, Thanksgiving is like on November 25th. And then Joshua would be like, no, it's not. No. And I'm like, wait, so it's November 26th? And he's like, no, like it follows there's like- no date. There's no date. I had no idea. Like for the longest, and this like goes way back to college. Like when I used to book flights for home for Thanksgiving break. Oh my I would goodness, be, like, wait, how? <laughs> I'd be like home like a week earlier just because like I would be like, oh, I think Thanksgiving is like, yeah, it has to be around the 25th. And it wasn't until I was an adult where I learned about this like last Thursday of like in November. Yeah. yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> That's so hilarious. I'm just like imagining your parents being like, why are you here right now? And you're like, oh, it's not Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. So confusing. Oh my gosh. I like never know any of these like days. <laughs> um, but the second secret is I actually don't celebrate Thanksgiving as of I think this is going on the third year. The first year oh, wow. was by accident because I just was in South Africa. And then mm. last year made a very intentional decision to not celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, and this year, yeah. So I'm not celebrating. Why don't you celebrate? So um, Joshua and I, one day we were sitting with our sheikh who we study with and he asked this question. He was like, you know, do you honestly think that your ancestors would be like happy about you celebrating Thanksgiving? <laughs> and there was mm, like, I could be. not. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, like, no. And then he was like, yeah, like, this is not like a holiday. It, you like you know, 
your ancestors wouldn't be celebrating like the genocide of, you know, original like people, um, native. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, you know what, like, I can't there's I just that was a question that really hit me and I couldn't justify it. And I know a lot of people, you know, try to remix this day, right? And say like, oh, yeah. it's like family time, this and that. But like the origins of this day and the reason why we celebrate it um, is, you know, a day created to celebrate like the mass killing of a people. And so I just was like, you know what? I have to stand up and like not celebrate this day anymore. Yeah, I think that's really fair. Like someone last week asked me like, oh, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Because I know you're Muslim. And I was like, like I did a double take. I was like, wait, why? What did I celebrate? <laughs> like it's not a religious holiday. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think all the things you said are valid. Like it's really, um, you know, shedding light on like imperialism and colonialism. Um, I do celebrate Thanksgiving, but to mm-hmm. be honest, I'm just in it for the food. I know. Um, the food <laughs> will like always get spirit. you. No, and that's the thing too. I know like a lot of people will agree like w- with everything I just said, but it's, you know, it's food, it's tradition. And I think it's so challenging, um, especially like in the American cultural landscape because, you know, days are, are inherently like I would call evil. <laughs> Thanksgiving is a very yeah. evil day. But you know, there are positive associations with it. And you're just like, Oh, yeah. this is tradition. Like this is the day we all have off, you know. And I think these things are like very intentional, right? That like, the government will be like, Yeah, you can have this day off. <laughs> so it's a positive um, association. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it, I know it's challenging. So I don't I'm not condemning anybody who like celebrates thanksgiving because i understand it's very challenging like when i like when we had to tell our families like we don't celebrate thanksgiving and like explain why and you know like we are missing out on family time um Mm. but it's yeah it's hard (laughs) yeah i think i don't think my mom even thinks about it as like this is thanksgiving i think she's just like oh all of my kids will be home at the same time (laughs) like nobody is gonna take that away from me (laughs) i i I don't know i I feel like if i told her if I told her I don't th- celebrate Thanksgiving, she'd be like, great, whatever. But when are you coming? Home? When are you coming? Just choose another day for all of yeah. you to come home. No, really, though. That's um, true. Oh, my God. Everyone <laughs> needs a break from the hustle. That's for sure. That's so true. I was talking to my sister the other day, and we were both talking about how it's been like a struggle to like make dinner for ourselves like the past mm. few days. And I was like, you know, that's really when you need to go home and like have home cooked meal when you like struggle to feed yourself like so repeatedly. Seriously. Oh my gosh. But but think about the day where like <laughs> you are your mom <laughs> and it's like you have like children coming to you who like want food. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> now that I've had like Muhammad Ahmed, I'm like, oh yeah, my how God. Do you feel? Like <laughs> yeah. Each year I'm just like, wow, I am becoming my mom. Like People are looking to me for food now. Like, it's so crazy. <laughs> I like I like the hosting part. Like, so last year was a big year for me because I made the turkey for the first time. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I actually made it for Friendsgiving and then I went home. It went really well, so I went home and I made it. And my mom was like, nice. okay, like, like she knows I can, like, do, like, good cooking. So, um, wow. so yeah, I'm making it again this year. I'm excited. But we're having... I originally asked my mom, I was like, okay, is it just going to be us for Thanksgiving? And she was like, yeah, you can cook like turkey and like whatever sides you want. And then we're having like some family friends over 
Um, and she was like, now we have to do this whole thing. It's mind you, it's only going to be like maybe four or five additional people. And some of them are little kids, but she's like full Arab. Like we're making like a leg of lamb and like grape leaves and like all of this extra. She's like, no, no, you can still do all of the things that like you do, but we're also going to do, it's just a lot, but you know, it's a lot, but like, I wish I was at your house. Yeah, I mean, you're delicious. welcome to come. <laughs> Just buy a quick flight real quick. <laughs> really? My mom would love to have you. If anyone is listening and needs a place for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Seriously, Hibba's house is where it's at. <laughs> um, oh, that's okay. So I did not realize you know how to cook a whole turkey. So Hibba, do you cook like regularly? Yeah. Are you like a mini chef? <laughs> a mini chef. <laughs> I mean, I try to, I think what I really love, like just cooking for other people and just like, um, you know, the hospitality of it. I like cook for myself, but I sometimes meal prepping and all of that gets really tedious. But when I have like an occasion to like, try to like learn something challenging, like I feel like cooking a turkey is like a marker of adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's just how I think. So I was like, yes, I'm doing this. And now that I know I can do it, I'm like, I'm gonna do this every year. For now, <laughs> I love it. And, you know, it's making me think just, you know, as we think about this episode of how cooking is also just related to community, right? Where, mm-hmm, sure. it, you know, it is exciting just to learn how to make a dish and be able to accomplish that. But like, what good is making a dish if there's no one to enjoy it, you know, That's and like, so affirm true. it for you of like, wow, this is really good. I was talking to a friend recently who is planning this big Thanksgiving dinner, and she was talking about how her grandmother, one of her, um, uh, oh, I forgot, love languages. One of her love languages is like uh, doing acts of service, but like specifically like cooking for With people, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and having them like affirm that her food is really good, and like that just like makes her heart melt. And so I'm just thinking about like cooking in community. Do you have that same feeling when you cook? Yeah. You know, is it for people? I relate to that so much. I think just like cooking is a big part of like showing people that you love them. Like whenever like I talk to my grandma on the phone, she's always like, what did you cook? Like, did you eat today? It's just <laughs> like, it's like her way of saying like, I love you, you know, yeah. like I want to make sure you're fed. And yes. yeah, I feel like there's so much like when you're sharing your food, it's really different than. Um, when you're cooking by yourself because you have to make sure like it's actually good (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's true it's so true so I I feel like do you get that feeling a lot when you go to restaurants you know like I feel like there are very few restaurants where I will go in and be like oh this feels like home you know usually people if you want to feel like home you're like I need a home-cooked meal um, do yeah. you have any restaurants that you've gone to where you've like felt like mm, this feels like home <laughs> or like this tastes like home? <laughs> Great question. Um, so I've actually been to Reem's um, Bakery. What? Or, yeah, in Oakland um, when I lived in the Bay Area for a while. And um, Reem is our guest today on the podcast. And she has a beautiful like Arab corner bakery in Fruitvale in Oakland. And it, I can really like vouch for this. It feels like like a space where you would walk in um, like in Syria or in Lebanon and people are just Mm -hmm. like happy and welcoming and like the colors are bright and the food is really good and everyone's very warm. Um, So it feels like home to me so much, but I think even like for people who aren't Arab that walk in there, it's such like a Mm -hmm. cornerstone, 
this cornerstone of their community. And so um, definitely top of my list. Wow. I, you know, I like know I need to go to Reem's Bakery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm like also just because like I love bread too. <laughs> Girl, who doesn't love bread? If you don't, you're lying. I know. It's so good. I think uh, there have been very few occasions where I felt like a home, like, I felt a restaurant to feel like home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one restaurant that like does feel like home is just because it's close to my home. <laughs> <laughs> and like where I grew up, it's this place called Spring Greens and it's like connected to the masjid that I attend. And when I was oh, pregnant, yeah, when I was pregnant, we went there so many times where it was like embarrassing. And this is actually funny because one week, we ordered food from there like two times or three times, I think. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to order food from there anymore this week. And then Mecca was in town and Mecca was coming <laughs> over for dinner. And she's like, what should I pick up? And so I suggested somewhere else she pick up because I'm like, I'm not going there. And then Mecca texts and she's like, the food is coming what in about a little this bit. <laughs> yeah. She's like, the food is coming in a little bit. I just had it delivered because like I'm running a little bit behind. And then the door opens and it's... <laughs> It's They're like, um, again. yes. And I was like, don't look at me. <laughs> I was like, so this funny. is so embarrassing. I'm like, this is the third time like I've eaten here this week. And he's like, it's okay. <laughs> the guy's um, like, we do personal chef services if you're interested. <laughs> I know, seriously. But no, I love places like that where, you know, you go and they know you, they know your order. And it just it feels I don't like know. home. Yeah, it feels less like a transaction, right? And like more like mm-hmm. home. Well, I'm excited to talk to Reem today. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited for people to hear. Reem is also just like one of my personal heroes. So, and I think her warmth just comes through like in all in the conversation. So, mm-hmm. I'm excited too. Yay. Okay, this is we're going to be like a super transparent at this point, but I just want to shout you out because Hiba actually edited this interview. She's not in the interview, but she edited it, which is like Yes, it's my huge. first time. <laughs> So I know that this is Hiba's work for this episode. I think we can get into the conversation now. Before we hop into the episode, two things. One, Reem is a very busy entrepreneur and made time to chat with us while on the go, so you'll hear a bit of background noise, and the audio quality isn't our best, but definitely still listenable, so I encourage you to keep going through. And the second thing is I forgot to turn on my recorder while doing the interview, so you'll notice my audio quality shift, but definitely for the better. You can make it through the episode, I promise, and it's definitely worth listening to. Reem, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. So I haven't had, or Mecca hasn't had the chance either to visit your bakery, Reem's Bakery, but we've read a lot about it and looked at the pictures a lot and it looks delicious. Um, Oh my God, yeah. (laughs) Hopefully you're salivating enough to make it on down here. (laughs) It's funny. I just got like an invitation to come to the Bay for like a conference. And now I'm like, maybe I just need to go. (laughs) (laughs) We do have people come in here right off the plane. I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I saw on your website, you talk about how Reams was born out of a soul-searching trip to Lebanon and Syria, but I didn't see what you were looking for. Like, I wanted to know more about this soul-searching trip and what were you looking for and did you find it? Yeah, so it's funny with these soul-searching trips, I think they're very dramatic. That's like my personality in general. It's like every sort of breaking point in my life. I want to know what it all means, right? So um, I'm not sure what I was necessarily looking for, but I was looking for some sense of purpose. Um, I think sort of leading up to that trip in 2010, I had really sort of dedicated my life and my, you know, most of my time really um, to organizing both professionally and sort of as an activist um, in my free time. So when that all sort of came crumbling and then when I had reached burnout, you know, like literally working around the clock, fighting these really, really tough campaigns that felt like they were just so stacked up against the folks that I was organizing, um, I didn't know how to make sense of the world because up until that moment, I was always an organizer. So I didn't know who Reem was outside of being an organizer. And so I think that trip was really to figure out how do I find sort of my sense of purpose again. I knew that there was something missing in my organizing work. I didn't know what that was. And I think we're all looking for that. You know, I think we're all looking for sort of where we are truest selves in the world and where do we add the most value. And yeah, I was at that sort of crossroads in my life um, where I was looking for that. I think um, quite selfishly also, I was searching for connections. Ironically, the very job that connects me to so many people had isolated me from myself, from my family. You know, at that time, I was like, I think I had been in a relationship that I just wanted, you know, like, had alienated, you know, all of the things, like my friends, my family. And so going back to the homeland, I was really hoping that I would, like, immediately find connection to all these, like, long lasts family members who I'd been estranged from. Didn't quite work out that way, but I think sort of that moment, that iconic moment that I talk about in walking into the street corner bakery was a transformative moment for me because these were, all these were strangers, but I felt so at home. And I felt like I was part of an extended community that I had never even known about. And I just fell in love with that. I was like, fiending for it almost like obsessed with it and feeling like I never had that as like a child of diaspora here in the United States where everything is so disconnected and individualistic where we're all sort of dealing with our struggles on our own that sort of feeling of connection to a broader community like I was hungry for that so I think those are the things that I found I love that and I'm sure a lot of people doing that type of work of organizing feel that same type of sentiment that you're describing of working with so many people, but feeling isolated, right, from yourself um, and family and friends, because that work is incredibly demanding. It, yeah. You know, I've only done it for a short while, but you feel like, can I just breathe a little? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. can I just, you know, you're like so intent on trying to figure out how, like, everybody's voice having everybody's voice be heard that like somehow in the midst of that you just become a conduit <laughs> and you're like oh shit 
where's my voice you know so i i was trying to like figure out what is that voice you mentioned that just being in the streets that you felt a sense of community with strangers do you feel that that you've successfully recreated the community and that connection that you're seeking some days yes and some days no i mean we are after all living in a very um turbulent political time here in the U.S., you know, where even though you try to create these spaces, you're still operating under, you know, the insane pressures of capitalism, (laughs) um, you know, just poverty, all the things. And so um, while I feel like I created a little space within sort of the Reams walls, um, there's still so much work to be done. You know, I think it's it would be kind of silly to say, you know, we, w- the work is done. But I think we're, I'm, you know, being two years into opening our brick and mortar, we've seen the transformation that we've created um, in people's finding a sense of safe space and community. Like people flock to Reams because there are no spaces like ours where people can be from all walks of life, can feel seen and heard can see themselves themselves really reflected in the space. Even though we lead with an Arab identity, we're very much Oakland as much as we are Arab. You know, we're very much people of color, working class folks, immigrants, as we are sort of, um, you know, the Menaish or the specialty thing that we're serving. Um, and so people come here for a variety of reasons. I think one of the things that I feel so um, proud of is that anytime I have people come to Reams and they, like one, one of the singular most things I hear is that they, I always run into people I know when I'm at Reams. And that just feels so organic. You know, it's like we didn't do anything in particular to make that happen. But the, like like-minded people, people who share a vision for the world, um, that is aligned with our values and vision are coming to Reams and they're helping build that vision with us. So, you know, I, I think that we've done our part a little bit to create the space. And now we need to think about sort of how do we not replicate that, but how do we scale that so that it's more deeply impactful and broadly felt? in a way that's not just symbolic, because I think one of the things that really got me into this work um, as an organizer, as someone who really believes in sort of transformative organizing and transformative justice is that, you know, we're here to transform an industry that's been historically exploitative. We're here mm-hmm. to um, employ people who've had the most barriers to employment. We're here to give a voice and a narrative uh, to people who've been at the margins and move them to the center. And that work takes a lot more coordination and a lot um, more resources. So, you know, my vision has always been to build on Reams and what we've sort of built in this physical space because physical space matters. We're, as, as we all know, as displaced people, Right. Whether we've been like longtime residents seeing our neighborhoods gentrify or we're new refugees being displaced from our homes, you know, that space is more and more limited. So we need Mm -hmm. to claim it. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, I think that's like part of my vision and my mission is is to do just that. That's incredibly powerful. And I really appreciate you sharing that um, because it ties into two things I'd love to hear more about, you know, one being that you are running a business in this capitalistic world that we live in and all of the pressures that that takes, especially in an area like the Bay Area, where it's incredibly expensive to to just exist and stay afloat. And you have a background as a labor organizer where you were holding people accountable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you were trying to make people run their organizations ethically. Yeah. So I'd love to hear about you know, how has that been? Is it like a lot harder to run an ethical business than, <laughs> than you thought? Like, what's that journey been like? Yeah, I'm like, man, I'm like, you know, one one day I was helping workers stick it to the boss and now I am the boss, <laughs> you know, like, how does that work? Um, but like, honestly, I, I, I sort of joke with my employees, we're, we're a staff of 25 people now. And I'm just like, I really just wish my workers would unionize. Because it'll make my life easier. <laughs> because like, come to me with a plan. You know, like come to me with a plan. Come to me with collective action, and I'll work with you. You know, and yes. I think that actually my background in labor organizing makes me a better leader because I understand. And this was something as a labor organizer we always talked about. Like it's you know everybody wins when workers are happy and treated well and have a voice. Right. For sure. It actually benefits everybody, including the owner or the boss or whoever. You know, nobody wins when we're pitted and divided against one another. Um, so I think having that perspective actually helps. Um, with that said, it, it, uh, I think sort of speaking to your first point, um, it's hard to like sometimes like, you know, choices. I have to make choices that are gonna make my business last over the long haul mm. that might not feel as good in the short yeah. term, right? In terms of like mm. where I want my workers to be, you know, like we pay mm-hmm. above average, you know, in wages, but I think like even 15 or $16 an hour is far from a living wage here in the mm. Bay area, yeah. and that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I try to make up for it in other ways, understanding yeah. that workers don't just come to work, Certainly wage is a, a piece of it, right? Like as a materialist, I believe in that. Um, but what are some other ways that we can sort of um, build a space for leadership development, for people to see a career path for themselves here? And the only way to do it in sort of this sort of model of capitalism, unfortunately, is to scale and, you know, yeah. to be out there. And, you know, if I just had one little restaurant, like, there would be no pathways for my workers, right? So like expansion and thinking about sort of how do we build more revenue streams has always been part of my plan in order to give my employees the best chance at thriving for the long haul. But in the short term, things are really hard. I mean, I think from week to week, we're like, we can't, I mean, I can't charge any more than I'm charging for a manushit that will just price my neighborhood out, you know? Mm. Um, but I'm also clear, like, there's some price points that are going to be higher than others, and it's because the community is involved in paying my workers well, you know? It's like a community effort. Mm-hmm. So I try to figure mm-hmm. out sort of what is the organizing methodology to have anyone who comes into Reams 
buy into the fact that they're part of the system, like that they have a role to play as a consumer or as as an ally or as a neighbor in in helping everybody succeed, right? Um, and it means being vulnerable. It means you know being very transparent um uh, with my staff when things are hard and like instead you know but we have sort of a can do attitude which is great we don't budget cut we try to figure out more sales um so i i think that's diff- i think being a labor organizer in my past has helped me come up with creative strategies of how to be resilient um which you have to have the stomach for it maybe it's my uh in my arab blood as an entrepreneur <laughs> to figure out a way because <laughs> I'm certainly, they didn't have business plans and, and they made it work. You know, they, <laughs> generations not. after generations, we've had our businesses <laughs> make it work, you know, even in the hardest of times. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, 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 it's very interesting. I mean, I'm often sort of facing these tough decisions that I have to make day in and day out. Mm-hmm. I want to backtrack to, what you mentioned earlier about Reims being as much Arab as it is Oakland, right? And so thinking about mm-hmm. why open, you know, this Muslim woman of color owned bakery, and then also on top of that, in a rapidly like gentrifying Oakland, like why choose this location to open? Yeah. When I first saw this space, I had not even thought of Fruitvale, but I'm so glad that like this, this space came up because. If you think about Fruitvale in Oakland, um, the context of that is, you know, this is one of the most ethnically diverse neighborhoods, if not in Oakland, in the whole region. Um, it has been a traditionally Latino neighborhood, but it, it's, it's, it's a mix of an intersection of so many different communities now from all walks of life. And it sort of has a Wakanda effect to it which I love, you know, it hasn't been hit hard by gentrification in the same way. And I think part of it is the cultural resilience of the people who live here. And so when I imagined who I wanted to walk into my bakery, it just all made sense for me to be here. Um, I think for me, it's important as an Arab and Muslim woman and the way that I'm positioned, because I know that I, you know, I bring with me a certain set of privileges. There are areas in my life where I didn't have privilege and there are areas that I did. Um, but to be able to talk about the intersectionality of my, uh, you know, history of struggles, um, of Arab and other black and brown communities that live here, right? Um, and, you know, we painted this mural that was really sort of emblematic of that intersectionality. We wanted black and brown folks to walk in here and not, you know, like I think Arab Arabs in this sort of climate have been otherized or criminalized or demonized, even among other communities of color. On the same end, there's been a lot of anti-blackness in Arab communities and Arab communities seeing themselves as separate from other communities in Oakland. And I wanted to break, break those barriers a little bit and really sort of transform people's consciousness around like, no, we're part of Oakland. We're part of this cultural fabric. And here's how our struggles intersect. Hmm. Here's the common sort of culprit of why we are in the situation we're in. And here's how we can kind of stand together and celebrate sort of the, um, you know, the beautiful aspects of our culture. I mean, even like the idea of bread 
being a transcendent thing of all cultures. I mean, we have people from the Latino community walk in and see us slapping the dough on the sage, and that immediately to them conjures up a tortilla on a griddle. You know, on like the sage is no different than a comal. So, um, so that was really important to me to like really sort of center myself in a community uh, and and celebrate and talk about these sort of intersections of our struggle. Um, and, you know, to be uh, forced because eventually gentrification will catch up. I mean, yeah. something that we grapple with all the time that, you know, in order to succeed as a business, we have to be hot. We have to be the thing. You know, when mm-hmm. Food and Wine names us top 10 restaurant, we need to be proud of that. Mm-hmm. You know, like the mains, if we just keep preaching to the choir, we're not going to really transform consciousness on like a bigger level right yeah so then what responsibility do we have when we have outsiders who are coming to reams as a destination spot because they want to get that experience to actually engage in the community that we're in and those are the kind of things that we're talking about on it constantly like how do we actually lift up the fruitvale community because we need businesses that are people of color owned that are social justice oriented um that help build this community rather than hurt it. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of conversations that um, I'm having and constantly grappling with. Um, but I think we've, we've been really good about sort of building relationships with the surrounding community here in Fruitvale. And we feel very good to be in this neighborhood. We feel like a lot of the people who come into our doors there, you know, you have you have your people from who don't live in the Fruitvale who come here, but you also equally have people who live in this neighborhood. And then the other important thing is that most of the employees who work for me live within a mile radius of this bakery. So, you know, without even intending to, we've hired locally. <laughs> uh, so that's you know, I think that says something is that like. You know, we're providing a value to this neighborhood that wasn't there before. Like in the plaza that we're in, most of the um, most of the businesses are like these big box businesses. You know, big franchises. They're not sort of small businesses that are oriented towards workers. So, you know, we feel we feel like that that is that that is part of sort of our duty um, as a business owner to be sort of. And that's another thing is like, you know, I was an activist as an individual and now an activist in the community as a business and businesses have power, right? Mm -hmm. As stakeholders. So, you know, we can impact policy. We can impact how cities are built, all of the things. Definitely. I love what you're talking about too. And just thinking about how it would be so powerful to see this at scale. I mean, I think I love that you brought up the privileges that exist and then particularly thinking about like anti-black and brown racism because there have been numerous times where I've walked into like an Arab-owned restaurant and it's like, okay, no one even like wants to salam you or like acknowledge you as a person, but you're like, oh, I'm coming here because like maybe the meat is halal or something, but there's no type of relationship building that will happen even though you might be a regular customer, right? But there's no sense of community that exists within that space. Right. It's like uh, for my own Arab community, like I'm very specific. You look, you walk into my restaurant, you know, 
what you're seeing is mostly black and brown folks serving, cooking, running the show. Very little of them are actually even Arab, you know, and those those folks are transforming about their own understanding of Arab hospitality and Arab identity and Arab politics just from the fact that they're there in a way that they wouldn't have. So it's not just a place that they work, but it's a place that they learn. You know, they're being politically educated, whether they know it or not. Um, and I and my hope is that even in our Arab community that they see that, too, you know, and understand that. So as we move into our wrap up, we just had a couple of fun questions that we wanted to ask you. So obviously, you know, you're a James Beard semifinalist, um, plus Food and Wine magazine named Dreams, one of the best restaurants in 2018. So we want to know what's the highest compliment on your food that you could receive? Like whose words would mean the world to you? Uh, <laughs> There's two that come to mind, like, Obviously, that that auntie who comes into my restaurants and says that like my musakhan is better than hers is just the world to me every time I hear it. But um, <laughs> one uh, Asad Abu Khalil, I don't know if you all know him. He's like the angry Arab. He has this like blog post, like pretty like he's a UC Berkeley professor, very very opinionated person. You do not want to be under the fire of his blog. <laughs> However, he is one of my biggest fans, and I remember he walked into my restaurant once, and he said that my bread is how the bread used to be in Lebanon. Like, it was that nostalgic. Like, they don't even make the bread like that anymore back in the homeland. And to me, that was just so affirming. All the work that I've done to figure out a good dough formula to really focus on sort of natural fermentation of bread and you know even if it's a little bit more expensive wow that's huge wow that like is bringing a tear to my eye (laughs) that's huge my parents were really worried about me for a a long time (laughs) they're like this she spent all this money on like graduating tufts and She's so lost, and now she wants to be a baker. We didn't know what she was when she was an organizer, and now she wants to, you know. Um, but I think I I, I do remember um, when I had sort of my first, maybe it was a New York Times piece on Reams. Like, I remember my mom calling me up, you know, almost sort of in tears, just like so proud. She's like, you put us on the map, you know? and I think, yeah. Um, and like, she's like, I get it now. Like, she understood, you know, why I was doing what I did. Like, I don't think they understood that. I think I didn't understand, you know. Um, I guess this is to add something that I um, think about a lot is like, you know, I don't know how many Arabs and how many Palestinians in particular come up to me, especially after the political backlash I received for putting Rafiya Aga up on my wall. You know, they were like, we wouldn't have done that, but thank you for doing that, <laughs> you know, and just like hugging me. We would never do that, you know, like, but thank you so much. You know, you put us on the map. You literally put us on the map. So, you know, I think those are like, those are big sort of turning point moments of like, I didn't know how much of a platform I was going to have and who was paying attention. And. When you're your true, authentic self, sometimes, you know, those moments all sort of line up 
for you to have this platform. Um, so I feel very fortunate. Yes. Okay, now this next question. Who would you like to cook dinner for? Like, if you could cook dinner for anyone, who would it be? <laughs> <laughs> Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> uh, she would just love my food i hope <laughs> she would love your food i know it in my heart <laughs> you answered that so yeah. quickly <laughs> yeah. oh my god i was like yeah or like the warriors yeah i was like i always like daydream like for the people that you know like maybe beyonce steph curry and I used to curry. Steph Curry is right around the corner. Like, that needs to happen. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Yeah, they are right around the corner. One day I'll get the Warriors. You know, I wrote an up- open letter to Draymond Green about his his trip to Israel and my disappointment. Mm. Asked him over for dinner. Wow. You know, so that I could make him a meal and engage him. He yes. still has yet to call me, but a girl can only hope. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Lee, he listens to this podcast. <laughs> call, call me, maybe. If 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 he's listening, please call her immediately. <laughs> oh man! So thank you again for this amazing conversation. I think our listeners have so much to walk away with. Um, but before we close out here, where can people find you and your work, both virtually and in real life? Yeah, so you can um, to learn more about Reams California. You can visit our website at www.reamscalifornia.com. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at ReedsCalifornia.com. And if you're here locally, uh, stop by our Fruitvale Bakery location at uh, the Fruitvale BART station. Um, or you can see us at Farmer's Markets Bay Area Wide. You can find all of that on our website. Um, and we're soon to be expanding. So just keep on the new, keep on the lookout for that. I'm sure the next location has to be Atlanta. That's just all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Reams Atlanta. It sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a very selfish pitch. <laughs> yeah. So lastly, we always like to ask our guests if there's anything else you would like to share with our listeners. We covered it all. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on Identity Politics. It's been so great to have you. I just followed Reams on Instagram and I'm obsessed. <laughs> I think we're we were just both texting. I think we're definitely going to come to Oakland like just oh, to try good. our food. You can also follow me at Reem.aseel if you want to sort of follow my travels because I do tend to travel and cook a lot. So Oh, great. Nice. Nice. Well, it's been great to have you on. Thank you. Identity Politics is a podcast created by me, Ikhlas Salim. This episode was produced by Ikhlas Salim, Mecca Ali, and Heba Moret. And music is by Ibrahim Azam. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>